Well, good morning, church. How are we feeling this morning? Feeling good? Awesome. It is so great that you're here. As as Aaron said, my name is DJ. I'm the associate minister here at the summit. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been in this series on the book of James. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in James chapter 2 this morning. Would encourage you to turn there. James chapter 2. And I'm going to admit, I don't want to preach this sermon. But I'm going to. Yeah, I don't know that you want to hear it. <laughs> James chapter 2, we've said all along, uh, and I appreciate Aaron reminding us of this, James is Christianity at street level, and what happens when you take the teachings of Jesus, when you take what the gospel calls us to, and you take it out of the realm of just theological wording, and you begin to apply it into everyday life, what inevitably happens and what should happen is that it gets into your business. And that's going to be very true in our passage today in James chapter 2. So as a reminder, we've been building on two foundational principles over the last couple of weeks. I'm going to continue to remind you of these each and every week because if you fail to understand or believe either one of these, what's going to happen, not just the letter of James, but the whole mission and message of the gospel is going to seem like chaos to you. It's going to seem unattainable. It's going to seem impossible. It's going to put all of the work of transformation on you instead of being able to rest in the finished work of Jesus. So foundation principle number one that we remind ourselves of is that we have a Savior who is not separated from our suffering. We've talked about this. God has anticipated our suffering. He's anticipated every challenge that we will have and, and, and ever will see in our life. And with that, we are reminded that we also have a Savior who both suffered himself and also goes along with us through the muck and the mire of life, that we have a Savior who is not separated from our suffering. The second foundational principle is that we have a Savior who equips us along the way through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that one also just as important because, again, if we are going to take Christianity, if we are going to take the message of the gospel out of the realm of just a theology and we're going to apply it into a working theology of our life, a practical theology of our life, the key component that we cannot miss in that church is that the act of transformation that must happen is only done in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is nothing that you and I can or will ever do to be able to get there. It's only through the gracious gift that we've been given of the Holy Spirit working within us. And so if you've missed uh, either one of the last two messages, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those so that you get an understanding of where we've come from and also where uh, where we're going to be heading because we've laid a lot of groundwork for where we are today in James chapter 2. And so I'm excited to dive into this with you, excited for all of you um, to be here as we continue in worship. But let's pray. Awesome God, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, Lord, please make us. In your holy name, amen. I came across an interesting article a couple weeks ago. 
And I'm not sure how to feel about it, to be completely honest with you. So there's been this debate that's been going on uh, between scientists for uh, many years, a couple of decades, where they've been debating the actual worth of the human body. And there are some scientists that say the human body is actually worth very little because once you remove the water, of which uh, mostly makes up um, the body, then all you have left, and this is what the article says, is a few dollars worth of ordinary chemicals. Some other scientists that came along shortly thereafter, one of them by the name of David Sadoof. He was a, a scientist professor at the University of Washington, and he wasn't, uh, he wasn't liking that answer. And so he studied it some more, and he said, well, let's think about it. If you take the typical 150-pound human body, and it has 10,200 units of a clotting agent that I'm not going to attempt to name to you. And if you were to take that, and if you could sell it on the open market where people go to buy their clotting agents, it would bring in about $30,000. And then he says there's another uh, a component in the body that, again, a typical 150 pound human body has about 40 grams of this other blood component that if you were to take that and sell it, it would bring in excess of $100,000. So he said, if you take those two chemical components, then the human body is actually worth about $130,000. That's a typical 150 pound human body. I am far from typical, my friends. <laughs> Just going to say and again, I'm going to be honest with you. I read this article, and I still feel a little icky about it. I'm not sure, actually, how to feel about it, that there are these debates that are happening where people are trying to actually put a monetary value on the human body. And in this section of James that we're going to be looking at, we're actually confronted with the exact same topic that makes me and will most likely make you as well a little bit uncomfortable this morning. Let's look at our passage, James chapter 2, verse 1. James writing says this, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's interesting when you think about it, actually. When you break down uh, James's letter, I find it very intriguing that shortly after he talks about finding joy in your various trials, uh, and then he goes into building the habit of asking God for wisdom as you face those trials, one of his next order of businesses in this letter is to instruct his readers not to show partiality. And what that means is that he is telling people, he's warning people, don't go around and pretend that some people are worth more than others. And so remember who James is writing to and, and what we're doing in this series is, is what I'm attempting for us to do is to look at this letter, not just as Christianity on street level, but Christianity on street level that's viewed through the lens of those of us who are sent that all of us, no matter where we are, no matter where you live, where you came from, your job, your background, you have been sent 
on a very important mission, carrying a very important message that God has told us to go and to proclaim. And so we're trying to look at this lens through the letter of the church, or, or we're trying to look at this letter through the lens of the church that is sent. It's written to Christians who have been persecuted, who have been forced to leave their homes to go into these foreign lands. And what James realizes is that there's this danger, there's this temptation that lies ahead of them to essentially not look at people in the same way that God looks at people. So why does James find this necessary? Is I believe because he understood a very important struggle that is with, within all of us that essentially we tend to assess the value of people in such a way that benefits us. We tend to assess the value of people in such a way that benefits us. Think about it. Put yourself just for a minute in the... In the in the minds of these Christians who are leaving their homes, who are going into these foreign lands, they're leaving behind a chaos of a life that's been persecuted. And they're going into this unknown territory, and they have to decide what are they going to do when they get there. Are they going to walk into these lands that they're being sent out to? Are they going to, as James says, are they going to hold fast to the faith or are they going to make compromises to make their situation better? Are they going to get into these places? Are they going to build relationships with people, not for the sake of the gospel, but for the sake of improving their own situation, their own life? And if you think questions that, that may or may not be going through their head. Well, maybe if I get in with the wealthy group, or maybe if I get in with the powerful group, or maybe if I get in with this group or that group, then that will make sure that my situation is comfortable. And it leads, I believe, to this very important principle that we need to wrestle with, and that's this, that your current circumstances do not excuse you from your responsibility as a follower of Christ. I need you to hear that. Your current circumstances, no matter where you are, no matter what's going on in your life right now, does not excuse you from your responsibility as a follower of Christ. Church, we have been called to live a life that looks different. To live a life that is being continuously transformed by the message of the gospel, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And there are times in our life, and I've been there, we've all been there, where things in our life happen. Struggles happen, chaos happens, trials happen. And what you have to fight in those moments is this feeling that, you know what, I just, I can't live as a follower of Jesus right now. I can't give everything to be a follower of Jesus right now when all this other stuff is going on around me. So I just need to step back for a minute. And James says, no. You're going in to whatever situation as a follower of Jesus. 
and no matter what you will experience, hold fast to your faith. And so what happens, actually, in this letter is it's quite impossible for James, again, he's, he's a pastor. He's, he's got this pastor's heart that's flowing through this letter. And in his wisdom and in his care, he can't not address this issue. I like, there's, a, there's an author that I love, Paul David Tripp. You may have heard of him. But he says this, he says, it's not that God has given you his grace to make your kingdom work. Now, hold on to that for just a second. It's not that God has given you his grace to make your kingdom work. Apply that to this situation, right? As these Christians are leaving their homelands, as they're going to other places, they should be reminded that, hey, God isn't removing you from that persecuted situation and putting you in this foreign land so that you can make a more comfortable life for yourself. That's not what this is about. Tripp goes on to say, God's given you his grace to invite you into another kingdom. A different kingdom, an upside-down kingdom. And so here's what I want us to do this morning throughout this passage, is I want to look at, James gives us a very practical case study about this topic. And then I want to quickly unpack five applications around it. Now, some of you are like, five? We're going to hit them very quickly, I promise. And one of them we're going to do a whole sermon on next week, okay? So one case study and five very quick, practical, biblical applications out of it. So let's look at this case study uh, first. This section opens with a very explicit instructions to believers. James says, show no partiality, show no favoritism to people. And what he does is he provides an example through this. He provides instructions for the church both then that are instructions for the church now. Why? Because he's addressing an issue that affected the church then, and he's addressing an issue that affects the church now. Let me say it this way, actually. I need to ask a favor of you, okay? I want to encourage you, as we read through this passage, to really open up your hearts to what it's saying. And here's, here's why I say that. Essentially what James is talking about here is he's talking about prejudice. And it's tempting, I believe, for us in our culture, in our day where we are now, to think that this doesn't apply to you. And what I want to ask you in this moment is to allow God's word to act as a mirror to you right now. That what God desires for each of us is to lead us into the deepest life imaginable. And how is that accomplished? That is accomplished by shaping us into the image of Christ. And how is that done? The way that that is done is that we are continuously confronted with the brokenness that exists within all of us. And our response to that is to plead, to cry out to God, to create in us something new that looks more like Jesus. And church, I, I want you to hear this morning, you don't have to be afraid to look at your mess. 
part of the reason that the church exists is for us to be able to look at our mess together. And I want to be a church where we look at our mess. So James chapter 2, starting in verse 2, he says this, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made the distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I've said this before, I think from this stage, I'm terrible at fashion. It's not my gift. I don't like shoe shopping, okay? I will be honest, I buy my shoes at Walmart. Some of you have very strong feelings about what I just said. So a couple weeks ago, I said, you know what, I need, I need a pair of, I just need a new pair of white shoes. I don't like to spend a lot of money on shoes. I was at Walmart. I was like, all right, I'm going to get a gallon of milk and some sneakers. <laughs> so I go in, I'm looking. I'm in and out of there in about two minutes. Find a pair of white shoes, grab my size, bada bing, bada boom, we're gone. Okay? I go home. The next day, I put my shoes on. I'm like, okay, those look pretty good. I like those. I go to Panera. I'm sitting there. And I kid you not, this happens. I'm sitting at this table, minding my own business. And there's two, maybe high schoolers, that are sitting at the table next to me. And one of them looks and he says, hey, man, those are some nice shoes. And I said, thanks, man. <laughs> and the other guy says, man, those are from Walmart. And I didn't know how to feel in that moment, to be honest with you. I'm like, is that not a great thing? But it's funny how we do this, right? And I think it's interesting that James uses this case study that has to do with clothing. Because what he's talking about is our tendency. And I want to be very clear on this. He's saying, we have a tendency to look at the outward appearance of somebody and put a value on them. And the thing that strikes me most about this whole passage is this is happening in the church. Remember that James isn't writing to the secular world. He's not writing to the non-believers. He's writing to the church. And he says the church is struggling at seeing people the way that God sees people. And one of the biggest fundamental truths in this passage that I see is that if my heart as a believer is ruled more by the physical glories of the created rather than the glory of the creator, there's going to be prejudice in my heart. James is getting into my business. I appreciate yesterday we had a great men's breakfast. 
um, up here. And, and if you were there, this will sound familiar to you, but, but Mike Sherman, who was our, our speaker at the men's breakfast, he had this illustration that I thought was great, and it really helps to illustrate this point. He says that when, when we are called by God to go and to be ambassadors to take the message to the world, to wherever we are sent. What happens is we, we have this posture of one foot that remains in the kingdom of God and one foot that's being sent into the culture that we're going into. I think this, this image is, is great. I loved it. But what tends to happen is we do this. And we move back and forth between the two. And what happens in that is we decide, okay, if, if this group of people can help me get to where I want to go, then I'm just going to stand here for a minute. And every now and then I'll come back to the gospel. But then if this group of people can help me improve my situation at the cost of my faith, I'm going to stand here for a minute. And what James is saying is, no, look at, look at what you're holding on to. Are you being drawn more to the glories that you see in creation rather than holding firm and standing firm on the glorious creator? So let's unpack this a little bit this morning. Five practical applications that I see in this. Application number one is this, that God has chosen the poor. Look at what James says right after this in verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? I don't know if you're aware of this or not. God didn't choose you because you're awesome. Somebody in this room needs to hear that. <laughs> but think about this for a second. God didn't choose you because of your wealth. God didn't choose you because of your success. God didn't choose you because of your knowledge. He didn't choose you because of your appearance. He didn't choose you because of your connections. Why? Because God doesn't choose people the same way that we do. And church, for that, we should be grateful. And so what we're reminded of here is that every person who comes to Christ, church, every one of us who has felt the call of God on our lives, who has surrendered our lives to Jesus, who is in the work of being transformed by the gospel, what we need to be reminded of daily is that God chose you in your absolute poorest state. God chose the poor. God chose you when you realize that you have nothing to bring, that you have nothing to hold on to that you have nothing to bring to the Heavenly Father to try to gain favor. No, it's like Scripture tells us. We come naked. We come broken. We come poor. And it goes on. Church, we still stand before Christ with nothing. 
because all the righteousness that we have is his. Now, just to get one thing very clear here, James is speaking of a much broader sense of the words rich and poor than what we typically associate them with. What he's saying is that the rich person is the one who feels that they have no need for the gospel. They feel that whatever security that they're searching for, whatever worth they're trying to find, they can attain it through other means. They don't need the gospel. They don't need a savior. Their sin isn't so bad. They are not so lost, so broken, so poor. So then in contrast to that, the poor man is the one whose heart recognizes the true depths of their depravity. The heart that's come to the place of desperation and has realized that nothing on this earth can offer the salvation that you and I so desperately crave. That it's only by God's grace. And so the heart that God has chosen is the heart that has realized that they're poor. Application number two. Be cautious of your motivations. Be cautious of your motivations. Verse six and seven say this, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And what's interesting about this is James is actually talking about current events that are happening. And, and this has been called out even as far back as in Old Testament. What happens a lot of times is that there's this practice in this day, in this culture, that these rich landowners would drag the poor people into the court system and would essentially use the corrupt judicial system so that they could get more money, more wealth, more power, and exploit the poor as much as they could. And often, these same rich people who would drag the poor into court made it a habit of mocking the name of Jesus, mocking those who claim to be followers of him. But where things are getting tricky in what James is pointing out here is that there were members of the church who, as they stepped foot into a new culture, are trying to cater favors with the rich person so that they can protect what they have. If I get in with these people, then they'll leave me alone. And they're doing it at the expense of the name of Jesus. And the question for us that we have to wrestle with in all of this is do we do the same thing? Are we willing to have someone stand against or mock the gospel in order to gain power, possession, protection? Are we willing to stay silent because there's another message that's being proclaimed that we feel like is more important? Church, James is urging us, be cautious of your motivations. Be cautious of your motivations. Application number three, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. 
kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. James chapter 2, verse 8 says this, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Now, we're going to spend a whole sermon on this whole topic next week, so I don't want to spend a lot of time here. But there are strong echoes of Jesus in his ministry. What did Jesus teach? He says there's two greatest commandments, love God and love people. There's two commandments that are essential and inseparable. And so more than constructing, constructing a life that is comfortable, when you're around people that make you feel special, when you're around people that make you feel comfortable, you have to remember that the call of the gospel is a call that is dangerous and it's a call that takes you to the vulnerable. It's one that's going to move you into places that aren't comfortable. To put you in connection with people who are not comfortable to you. Why? For the sake of grace. And if I can put it into a very powerful perspective for you, it was that exact lifestyle that cost Jesus his life. A love for the vulnerable and a willingness to not be comfortable. Application number four. Look at us, we are rolling. Partiality isn't a little thing. I'm going to be honest. I wish this one wasn't there. I wish James would have just stopped it. Hey, if you love people, you're doing well. Then I could be like, got it. Thank you. But no, look at what he says, verse 9. He says, but if you show partiality, if you look at people and instantly determine what their worth is to you, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. I don't know if this is true for you or not, but this is where I really start to get uncomfortable. The truth that God looks as sin, as sin, as sin, no matter how we or our society defines it, is a hard pill to swallow. Because look at the things that he's comparing here. He's got adultery, he's got murder, and he's got partiality, and he put all of them on the same level. And we look at that and say, I don't know. People don't go to jail in our society for having favorites. People don't go to jail in our society for committing adultery. But what James says is no. If you don't keep any part of the law, you have become guilty of all of it. And partiality is no different. 
But the beautiful thing about this whole thing that I am very thankful for is that James doesn't stop there. Because this final application that we see is a great reminder of what we have in Jesus, and that is that mercy triumphs over judgment. Verse 12 and 13, James says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is out without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. I love how he says that the law that we are under is the law of what? It's the law of liberty. It's the law of freedom, that we have been set free. And there are many, maybe in here today, that when you think of the Bible, when you think of the law of God, you think, how does the law give freedom? Because some of us, we have this this constructed image in our head that when we are called to be followers of Jesus, the fun stops. We can't do the things that we want to do. We can't have fun in life. We are slaves under this law. And so you think, how does it bring freedom? And then when we do begin to grasp it, we think, well, how can we attain it? All it does is condemn us. We can't fulfill it. It kills us. And my response to that is, you got it. You're right. Because of sin, we are condemned under the law. But church, when we realize just how poor we are, how sinful that we are, we are killed at the foot of the cross. And Christ's death becomes our death. But the gospel doesn't stop there because then we are awakened at the tomb. And Christ's resurrection becomes our resurrection. That no longer are we under this law that we can't fulfill. It's been fulfilled by the person and work of Jesus. And so church, now we are under a law of freedom and liberty. We have been raised in the newness of life. Why? Because mercy triumphed over judgment. And in that moment, what happens to us, church, is that the Holy Spirit comes upon us and begins the work of transforming us from the inside out, and we truly start to realize what our purpose is. That yes, we have stepped foot into a culture And it's a nasty culture, and it's a divisive culture, and it's a culture that determines the worth of people. But church, because we are under the law of liberty, we've got one foot that stands in the kingdom of God that has been called to look at people the same way that God looks at people, to look at people the same way that God looked at us. To say, you want to know what your worth was? That even in your poorest state, I gave my life for you. 
so that you could experience mercy in its greatest form. And so church for us, when you encounter the one who is poor, when they've been humiliated everywhere else, when they've been told that they're worth nothing, church, what we are called to is to treat them as a child of mercy. To speak to them the gospel of freedom. That they too would be convicted but that they too would find salvation, that they too would be given dignity, that they too would be shown that they are an heir to a kingdom that does not change. A kingdom where mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. God, Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we surrender to you our desire to make our name great. God, we confess to you the areas of our lives where we try to improve our own situation at the cost of the gospel. And God, I pray for each of us as the church, as followers of Jesus, God, that we would hold fast to the faith that has set us free, that we would hold fast to the one who has broken our chains, the one who grabbed us in our poorest, most broken, depraved state when we had nothing to give. But the one that places us as an heir to the kingdom. That because of the name of Jesus, we have been given great worth. And so, God, as we now are called to be the church that is sent out, as we are called to become the gospel, God, I pray that you would help us to break down the prejudice that we have. Whether it's to certain people, certain groups, God, that you would help us to see people, not just the way that you see people, but you would help us see people the way that you saw us. no matter how unlovable, no matter how ugly, that you were still willing to lay it all down to set us free. God, may you continue to transform us into the image of Jesus. In his name, amen.